We do put our public officials on a pedestal, but in a sense, we're electing them. We're trusting them to have our vote. In some ways, we're putting them above us and what we expect of ourselves. But should we? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, October 27th, and today, Tara Palmieri joins me to talk about the hotly contested Pennsylvania Senate race. The campaign between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz is truly a jump ball heading into Election Day. But Fetterman's halting debate performance this week continues to exacerbate concerns about the stroke he suffered in May. Tara and I discuss just how much his campaign will suffer, if at all. And later, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Hillary Clinton's new solo philanthropic project. He digs into her divisions with her husband, Bill, and her Obama-esque turn from politics to media celebrity. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri, who always joins me to talk hardcore politics. But there's only one thing on any political junkie's mind this week, which is the Pennsylvania Senate race between John Fetterman, the Democratic Lieutenant Governor, and Dr. Mehmet Oz, the Republican, Trump-endorsed Republican. They had their first and only debate in Harrisburg on Tuesday night. There was enormous attention on this debate because Fetterman had a stroke back in May. And it has been a challenge for his campaign since then to respond to attacks about his health, questions about his health. So all eyes were on Harrisburg this week. And Tara, the reviews for John Fetterman were not good, were they? No, I think it was all around a disaster. A lot of Democrats who reached out to me today have been saying, why did they let him debate? That he was not well enough. He should have just said no the way that Katie Hobbs is saying no to Carrie Lake and she's not suffer. She didn't just suffer from a stroke. You know, there's some people, the optimists who say, who really pays attention to debates anyway, right? It depends on if Oz can cut enough ads around those debates, spend like $20 million and just like hammer the airwaves with those clips. When it comes to weaknesses, Oz has many. He's not 
from Pennsylvania. He's an out-of-touch rich guy. That, that's what the Fetterman campaign is saying. But the whole conversation in the Pennsylvania race since May, but clearly in the last few weeks, has been, is John Fetterman well enough to serve in the Senate? And even if he is, and his doctors say he's fine, and having auditory hearing issues and needing visual aids, which he needed during the debate, everyone says is common for a someone who's suffered a stroke. But it still doesn't change the fact that voters who are maybe only tuning in now, I don't know how many of those there are in Pennsylvania, but they might be feeling a little queasy about sending this guy to the Senate because he already doesn't look like a typical politician, which was an asset. But now it might feel like you'd be taking a risk on somebody who doesn't fit the mold of a politician. You know, I mentioned to some Republicans, I was like, why is Mitch McConnell so invested in Pennsylvania when, again, Shapiro on the top of the ticket could help Fetterman along. Mastriano really can't help, you know, Oz. And they pointed out that actually in 2020, Toomey, Pat Toomey, who is uh, the Republican outgoing senator, that he actually polled higher than Trump. He actually got more votes than Trump. So ticket splitting is actually a thing in Pennsylvania. I would think, too, in New Hampshire, where Chris Sununu is very popular, he's the governor running for re-election, distanced himself from Don Bulldog, who won the um, primary for the Senate GOP candidacy. You know, he's polling within three points, two points in some places of Maggie Hassan, who's a senator in New Hampshire, a Democratic senator. Why did Mitch McConnell take money out of New Hampshire, where they could win with Sununu's help, and bring it over to Pennsylvania, where they've dumped probably like 20 million, maybe more into that race. And I think there's a feeling that they're that they're more independent minded people up in New Hampshire. They're more likely to ticket split. Sununu has really not embraced Don Bulldog and back said it during the primary, don't vote for him. So I feel like ticket splitters are going to be the people that decide this election. And I could be wrong, but at least in the Senate. One thing I want to ask you about, though, is like a day-to-day reporter on a lot of these races. The Fetterman campaign has pushed back aggressively since the stroke against reporters, pundits, any bozo on Twitter, raising questions about Fetterman's health. And if he has auditory processing issues, which lead to speaking issues, that doesn't impact how he's going to vote. Like the mind is still there. However, it does feel like vibes are very important. It feels like the Fetterman campaign has tried to poo-poo the idea there would even be a question or a concern about John Fetterman's health. And that increasingly feels like a tenuous place to be for a campaign. I mean, you can't just like tell every reporter they're wrong and every voter they're wrong and shit on every story and be like, how dare you? How do you feel about that kind of pushback as a journalist? I think there's a reason why voters want a bill of health from the president of the United States. Like, they're your representative. They represent you. They work for you. They're public servants. Like, there's something to be said about just wanting to know that they are able to and are up to the task. Yeah, sure. But anyone can go in and vote for someone else. But can you write legislation? Can you debate on the floor? Can you argue for the issues of your constituents? That takes abilities that a healthy person has. No, like this goes into a whole debate over like 
discrimination against disabled people. And there's a lot of laws against that when you're applying for a job, right? To protect people who have disabilities. I also think when you're running for office, everything's on the table. And when you're a public person, the scrutiny is higher. It just is. We're not the HR department trying to be fair. You know, we're deciding, I don't live in Pennsylvania, but we're deciding who we're going to send to Washington and who can do the job. It's very ethically murky. The story plays right into something that really grates on political strategists and flacks and spokespeople, which is that reporters focus on optics, vibes, performance, and certainly Fetterman's performance in a debate is the thing that most people are writing about and talking about on TV and and on social media after the debate. And performance isn't necessarily what an everyday voter cares about. And, And they care about policies and they care about inflation and gas prices and healthcare and education. And reporters talk about the game and the horse race and what things looked like and what they perceive versus what voters actually care about. The problem is those two things aren't always distinct. I mean, a voter can care about gas prices and also have some questions about John Fetterman. And a voter can maybe be inclined to vote for Dr. Oz because maybe he'll be better on the economy when he votes with Republicans. But he said in the, also in the same debate that local politicians should be involved in a woman's health care decision around abortion. And it's also, though, like live by the vibes, die by the vibes. I mean, Fetterman's thing the whole time was, yeah, he's for working people. Yes, he's pro-union. Yes, he supports a variety of policies that, that progressives like and Democrats like. But part of his vibe, he's got tattoos on his arms. He's six foot eight. He wears shorts. He wears hoodies. He's one of us. And so they were trading off of that and dining out on it for the first part of the campaign in which his vibes were appealing to people. He's new, different, fresh, doesn't look like a politician. But now the vibes are working against him because it's like, ah, he doesn't seem like he's all there. So, you know, if you're going to live by the vibes, you might have to endure some bad vibes too. I agree. It's kind of a a formula, right? That goes into a human, into which one you pick. Authenticity matters so much. History tells us even just having the the right look, sometimes better looking candidates. There's a reason why you saw people like Chris Christie getting lap band surgery before he decided he wanted to run. Mike Pompeo losing all this weight. Like there's the impression that like we do put our public officials on a pedestal, right? But in a sense, like we're electing them. We're trusting them to have our vote. In some ways we're we're putting them above us and what we expect of ourselves. But should we? I don't know. And when you say it like that, though, it's you, you start to think like, well, then wouldn't just the best actor win? And that might explain why <laughs> Ronald Reagan is beloved. Or The Apprentice is Donald Trump is beloved. You know what I'm saying? Like, is it just the person who's the most charismatic speaker? I mean, it's not like Barack Obama had this amazing resume when he became president. He was like a junior senator from Illinois before that was a state senator. Like, he just was a like a inspirational figure, very good looking, orator, charismatic, had a vibe. Yeah, emotion and performance were hugely important for him and hugely important for Donald Trump too. And like you know, in the mobile phone cable news era, like yes, you have to be an actor and a performer. And you know, this race has really just changed over the last few months. I mean, over the summer, Fetterman was leading by 10. And now it's basically a jump ball. Almost, I think like over half a million people, like almost like 700,000 people have voted already. There's not a lot of undecided voters left in Pennsylvania. So it's just too early to tell 
whether this will totally derail Fetterman's campaign. But I can tell you that the way Democrats were responding and Fetterman supporters were responding on Twitter and on television tells you everything. They were like, John didn't do his best tonight, but we took the fight to Dr. Oz and privately the assessments are much worse. So like whatever the candidates and campaigns are telling you, we know that they're yelling at reporters about all this. Privately, they are worried. So maybe then, you know, Mitch McConnell was right all along. I was wondering why they were spending so much money in Pennsylvania. They always believed that Fetterman was going to be weak. They probably saw this coming. Yeah. Tara, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about the Hillary Clinton Leadership Project. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, talking to Puck's very own Teddy Schleifer. Hey, Teddy. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. You had a bunch of gems in your latest newsletter, The Stratosphere, which, by the way, anyone who's listening should sign up for if they haven't already. But yes, let's talk about Hillary Clinton. That was the sort of top item in your candy bowl of stories the other day. She is striking out on her own with a Clinton Foundation spinoff or something like that, which is raising some eyebrows among the big money crowd. What are you hearing about that? And what is she doing? Sure. She, on Monday, had about 100 people to the St. Regis in New York City to kick off a new philanthropic initiative within the Clinton Foundation. It's a spinoff, sort of. I mean, um, basically, Clinton, uh, ob- obviously, just to, just to recap the last uh, 15 years of, of life and give everybody some well-deserved PTSD, I mean, the Clinton Foundation was originally a, a Bill Clinton initiative and then became the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation. But over the Trump years, you know, it became a boogeyman, fairly, unfairly, whatever, uh, in right-wing media, you know, constantly beleaguered by its ties to foreign governments, so much so that the Clinton Foundation has seen fundraising kind of plummet over the last couple of years, it's just become sort of a, a epithet, maybe, to parts of the right. The Clintons obviously feel this is unfair and feel that this is a philanthropy that is being tarred and feathered by Donald Trump and his allies. Regardless, it's, it's clear the Clinton Foundation needs to find ways to keep moving forward. And Hillary Clinton is only 75. And she wants to use it to kind of help her enshrine her own legacy. Obviously, she does not have a presidential museum. And the Clinton Foundation itself is seen uh, as a bill initiative primarily. So over the last few weeks, um, I've been hearing from sources that that Hillary Clinton has been fundraising for a new program within the Clinton Foundation called the Hillary Clinton Leadership Project, which is sort of a Hillary stamp on the Clinton Foundation, which is now a couple decades old, but is now going to have the imprimatur of her and is going to be a way for her to talk about all the good that she's done in the world. And I'm sure in due time will be attacked by the right for various transgressions, uh, real and alleged. Of course. Uh, Right. It's interesting timing, too, because obviously the Clinton Global Initiative returned this year. That's the the international confab they put together with thought leaders. They used to do it annually. They took a six-year hiatus and came back this fall. As you noted, the Clinton Foundation, originally founded by Hillary's husband. So in some way here, this is her way to sort of strike out on her own um, as a person, as a brand, as a political figure. At the same time that Bill himself has sort of stepped back from the political scene somewhat, in part because he's he's getting older, as I think anyone who has seen him has noticed. But also there's been more attention to some questionable behavior in the past and associations, including with eminence such as uh, Jeffrey Epstein. 
And um, I assume, too, that Hillary herself is just more present and involved as an operational force at this point in these kind of foundations. And so it makes sense for her to have her own branded foundation behind her. Right. I mean, uh, Tara, right, who was on a minute ago, you know, wrote about sort of CGI this year um, and sort of noticed that, like, there's not the same gravitational pull that the Clinton Global Initiative had, certainly in the pre-Trump era, but like, you know, really during kind of the neoliberal heyday of Obama of years, um, you know, Bill Clinton was this this widely admired figure. And, you know, I think Me Too maybe changed that a little bit. Now, like Hillary Clinton, she's still has her fans in Democratic circles, 100%. I saw her, she was out here doing a fundraising event for Proposition 1, which is a California ballot initiative on abortion. She was out here in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. And like, you would have no idea that she is hated by so many people on the right. In parts of the Democratic establishment, capital D, capital E, she is still very much in demand, but I just do not see her appealing to the middle in the way that she maybe did when she was Secretary of State. And that matters because, look, I mean, this is the, obviously she's not running for president. You know, her political career is over, but is she going to be gathering, you know, the eminences of the Republican Party to her conclaves and her, you know, retreats going forward? Like, it's hard to believe, you know, Ron DeSantis showing up at a Clinton event in a way that like, you know, George Bush and Mitt Romney and like other kind of center-right Republicans, you know, gravitated toward the Clinton brand not that long ago. I was going to say a long time ago, but not really that long ago. I mean, so that, you know, look, politics happens, events happen. You know, we're talking about the pre-Trump era, which I know is seven years ago. It's no surprise that times have changed for Hillary Clinton and, you know, people are rolling with the punches. Yeah, the, the political world has changed. Hillary herself has changed. It's worth noting, too, for just for context, that um, she's also undergoing a bit of a renaissance in her dealings with the entertainment industry, sort of following the Obama, Oprah, Meghan Markle playbook where, where she has done these glossy co-productions and partnerships in books and film. In 2020, she participated in a documentary for Hulu. More recently, she wrote this book called Gutsy with her daughter Chelsea that's now an Apple TV Plus series. There's always some level of speculation whenever Hillary is back in the headlines that she could be positioning herself a return to politics. But I also wonder if this is just what post-political life looks like now for a person at a certain level. Like if you are Paul Ryan, you leave Congress and you go back to your law firm and then maybe you launch a SPAC. If you're Obama or Clinton at that level, you're going to cut a deal with Netflix or Spotify to advance your agenda, to stay in the conversation, to stay in the limelight. And it seems like this new Clinton philanthropic vehicle fits more into that latter category. Yeah, look, I mean, everyone's everyone's a brand now. I mean, I think even the name is interesting, like the Hillary Clinton Leadership Project. These are people who have these legions of fans. Hillary Clinton has been a, a global brand for, you know, even since Little Rock, we're, you know, approaching 40 years of this, right? So there, there is an element of, of she will never fade away because she just has, you know, followers, especially among women um, who uh, will admire her till, till the day she dies. And there is no presidential run uh, in the offing, but there are better things in life than being president of the United States. I mean, she has celebrity-like profile that is true of Obama and is true of Bruce Springsteen, is true of so few people in, in modern American culture, but it's true of kind of maybe maybe five people in democratic politics, former presidents included. But even though she did not become president of the United States, she does have a brand that, you know, rivals Jimmy Carter or George H.W. Bush. She is a bona fide celebrity, and it's no surprise that 
philanthropically, she's leaning into kind of her profile, like this, the Hillary Rodham Clinton leadership project. And it's no surprise that with her media kind of work, she knows what she's got, which is an incredible brand that's obviously taken a hit over the last five years, but still pretty good. Yeah. And again, I think it's notable that she is really striking out on her own in a way here. I mean, I don't want to read into this too much that she has this foundation that is just the Hillary Rodham Clinton Foundation. But Bill and Hillary together, this has been a professional and a political marriage for a long, long time. Um, I don't think I'm going out on a limb in, in, in saying that. And so it is intriguing to me to see Hillary, who is just a year younger than her husband, but you know, looking a lot more youthful these days, maneuvering to do more under her own name and with her own brand and, and shoring that up. This reminds me of a funny story that was passed along to me from a former high-level staffer at CGI a number of years ago. And this person recalled how when Hillary and Bill would enter a room together, they would not even interact. Like they had their staffers and their aides around them. And those people would talk to each other. And Bill and Hillary were in their respective corners, like tapping away on their Blackberries and not talking to each other. So uh, obviously um, they have been in sort of distinct spheres for a while, even as this political and professional marriage has gone onward. So it is, uh, again, interesting to see that sort of beginning to fracture a little bit or, or at least um, uh, take on a new valence between them. Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, obviously Bill Clinton's not going away. You know, CGI still happens with Bill and Hillary Clinton. But these are sort of kind of everyone finding their lane, I think is probably the way to put it. Bill and Hillary Clinton will still work together. The marriage continues, but now Hillary kind of has her own philanthropic entity within a bigger philanthropic entity. Bill has her stuff. Chelsea also, you know, as she's gotten older, has carved out her own lane and kind of global health work. It's all in the family. Everyone's got their thing. And now Hillary has her thing is too. We all need a side hustle, Teddy. But thanks for coming by. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.